Well, good morning. You know, the Lord has always had His uh, loyal followers, those who um, are His servants, who recognize their own failures, and in their own failures, they see God's mercy in salvation and granting salvation. They see his, his faithfulness to uphold those who seek to follow him in faith and who believe his promises for eternal life, an eternal life of worship um, freed from slavery to sin, right? Not, not, not those who don't ever sin anymore, but we're not enslaved to our sin. And the psalmist has always had his companions, his friends, his uh, his kindred spirits, you might call them, right? Those who fear the Lord, those who, who love to keep God's commandments, his, his principles, his laws. And they're encouraged, even when seeing other believers struggle, but also seeing them strive to keep God's commandments. That doesn't mean we're happy to see anyone struggling, but when we see others struggle, it brings joy to our soul, and it should bring joy to our soul when we see them striving to follow the Lord according to his word. That brings joy. It helps spur one another on in the love and good deeds uh, that we are called to live in. But as we're in uh, just past the middle of this psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, the temperament that seems to be winning the day here is a skepticism that the psalmist has. It's not all colored by skepticism, but, but throughout the psalm, there's a skepticism for those who appear to love the Lord, but who are very, very clearly half-hearted. As we'll see today, you heard uh, Kurt just read in verse 113, I hate the double-minded. Those are strong words. Our kids grow up and we say, don't say hate. Well, it's in the Bible. Okay, well, that's a different conversation. <laughs> so he's skeptical of those who appear to be following the Lord. He's skeptical of those who, who've already been shown to be wicked. They've already been coming after him. They, they plot against him. They, they malign him. They lie against him. They smear him. And they lie in wait to destroy him. Those who have already been seen or are attacking him, they show scorn, contempt. They, they, they malign his character. They slander him as they repeatedly lie, repeatedly lie about him. Even authorities, those in positions of power, seeking to do him harm. And what's more than that, the psalmist is, is young enough. We don't know exactly even who wrote this psalm, but we get the sense that some commentators tell us maybe he was younger. He says in verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Verse 99, as we saw last week, young enough to say, I'm wiser than all my teachers. One commentator, speaking about his youth, he says... Um, he describes him as he's sensitive to scorn. Verse 39, he says, the reproach which I dread. Commentator says he, his isolation makes him, he's low-spirited. He uses the word, I feel small, I feel despised. He's drained of vitality, he's dried up. His spirit is dried up. Like Jeremiah, Derek Kidner says, he's, he's another, another thin-skinned personality. Now, as I read this psalm, I don't, know that I would describe him as a thin-skinned personality unless I am incredibly thin-skinned, maybe. And he says he's, he goes back and forth, alternatively saddened and infuriated by what he sees, reacting with tears, we'll see that next week, and hot indignation, disgust, as we'll see in a couple weeks. Now, these aren't necessarily uncontrolled 
ungodly responses to everything that he sees. Uh, one way to know if, if your anger is godly anger or ungodly anger is, are you angry at the things that God is angry about? Or are you angry about the things that you're just angry about? Are you offended for yourself? Or are you offended or are you angered by the things that smear God? Are you angered by the things that God would consider unjust in this world? But not only are you angry about what God is angry about, are you angry in the way that God would be angry? Do you respond in the way that would honor God, even in your anger? It's two ways that we might not be, death in the ditches, as they say on both sides. One is to respond with impassioned anger, uncontrolled anger, not walking in the Spirit, so that we are, because we're not walking in the Spirit, we are gratifying or giving into or satisfying the desires of our flesh. Or, you might be angry about what angers God, but you lack courage to speak up when God's people need to speak up. Right? So you, so you can be angry in that you're, you're, you're just lashing out. Angry may be about the right thing, responding in an ungodly way, or responding in an ungodly way by, well, by almost not responding. By not speaking out against the things that anger the Lord. In the psalmist, we see an anger that is angry about the things that would anger God. And, and from what we see, at least here, a man who's, who's praying, although direct and sometimes hard to read thoughts, thoughts that are geared toward the Lord and God's glory, thoughts that are preaching to himself so that he would live to honor the Lord. Today we're going to see at, at the bookends of both of these passages, or this section, I should say, verse 113 and then verses 127 and 28. He starts with uh, hate and love, and then he ends with love and hate in verses 127 and 128. He starts out, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. It's a significant statement, and it's an interesting pairing. Our main idea today is delighting in God's word leads to decisive moments to choose what is right and to depend on the Lord to take care of you. Delighting in God's word, God's law, leads to decisive moments to choose what is right and depend on the Lord to take care of you. We need to be decisive. We need to, we need to welcome what's right and we need to reject what's wrong. I don't know if you've ever seen a tomato sorter, right? Uh, I wasn't even looking for this illustration, but I just happened to see this little video this week. These are the cool... like. I don't farm, but I want one of these things. I mean, they're so cool. You know, they, you've got all of these tomatoes coming across on these conveyor belts, and they come up over the conveyor belt, and they go into the compartment. And then you've got this basically like wall of paddles, right? And you've got some sort of a, something that's looking for a reflection of light. The, the red tomatoes, they, they reflect light. And so you see these like bright little white spots or light red spots on these red tomatoes and the green tomatoes, not so much. And so you've got all these red tomatoes coming over and all throughout this line, you've got these paddles going whap, 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 whap. It's like a, a horizontal version of whack-a-mole, right? I mean, it's the coolest thing, right? All hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tomatoes and you've got these paddles just whack, 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 whack. You and I need to be so delighting in God's word that when something comes that is clearly not godly, we need to go whack. That's not of God. Whack. Get that out of my mind. Whack. 
We need to welcome what's right. We need to reject what's wrong. Well, how? Well, we determine here, he's talking about determining to obey God's law by, now this is the part that sounds a little harder, disassociating or dissociating from those who know God, they know about God, I should say, but they won't trust in him. I'm going to say that again, and you need to take it in. They determine to obey God's law by distancing themselves from those who know about God, but they won't trust in him. These are the people that the psalmist here calls double-minded. They're people who, who waver with, with two opinions. First Kings, Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and he's challenging the people to follow Jehovah rather than the false god of Baal. Listen to what he says. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? It's like, make up your mind. If the Lord's God, follow him. But if it's Baal, follow him. People didn't answer a word. They were indecisive. Am I going to follow this God or am I going to follow this God? Do you know what God you're following, friend? Do you know if it's the Lord God who gave us the perfect scriptures, his sufficient word, who gave his perfect son on Calvary that you and I might have a relationship with him by denying ourselves, turning away from ourselves, and, and trusting in him? That is the one true God. Maybe you, you worship a different God. You might not call him Baal, but you might call it self. Him or her that you worship and you won't surrender to the Lord. You understand aspects of the gospel, but you just can't bring yourself to say, I can't do it on my own. God, I throw myself at your mercy and I need you to save me. The reason people get offended when they hear about a savior is because they don't think they need saving. They're happy to hear about God. They're happy to hear about religion that contributes to the common good. As soon as you mention that people need a savior, oh man, it gets dicey. They they want the benefits of being counted among God's people, but they want the earthly benefits of their sin too, right? They know about God, but they're not fully determined to worship him and serve God only. Now, I want to be clear. It's not about avoiding relationships that lead to evangelism, right? We know that that would be counter to other parts of scripture, but it is about choosing relationships that thrust you into walking on the path of righteousness, for God's namesake. Relationships that point you to Jesus. Relationships that that don't let you just wander your own way without at least trying to do something to try to trip you up on the way and say, no, don't go that way. Right? You're like, wait, I thought you were my friend. How come you're trying to trip me down? Because that path leads to death. You need to make a 180 and go that way. Just leave me alone. I can't make the decision for you. But I do what I can to trip you up and slow you down as long as you're going the wrong way. And somewhere along the way, that friendship needs to cease or have a very different direction. It goes from being an an amiable pal-on-pal, sister-on-sister, friend-on-friend relationship where you go shopping together and you hang out. It no longer becomes a hanging-out relationship. Now it's a directive relationship where you've got somebody saying, listen, I love you, but you're going the wrong way. We can't hang out like this anymore. I'm always here for you. I am always here for you. But you need to fear the Lord. You need to turn back to the Lord. You need something? I'm here. But just hanging out anymore? We can't do it. 
We can't do it like this because by just hanging out, I'm giving approval to your lifestyle. We can't do that. Psalmist makes it clear. Be decisive. You see something that's not reflecting the light of the Word of God, the light of the Son of God in you? Whap! It's got to go. What needs to go in your life, friend? What are, what, what are you holding on to? What are you indecisive about? Ah, a few green tomatoes won't ruin the bunch. Not according to God's Word. Galatians warns us. I'm going to hit a few passages here. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See that? Friendship? Brother? Brother? Sister? Sister? Relationship? Children of God? Somebody is caught in a transgression, a sin, walking away from the Lord. You who are spiritual, you who are not self-righteous, you who are walking with the Lord, imperfect but striving after the Lord, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, the relationship changes. There's a, there's a wisdom that needs to come into the situation to inform how far you can go in that friendship at this point, in that conversation at this point. 2 Timothy 3. I, I mean, you really should read 1 through 17, but I'm just going to read 1 through 7 this morning. He says, understand this. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Uh, kids... Listen up here. Disobedient to your parents is a big deal. It's a big deal. They love you. They'll always love you. But it's a big deal. Any of you kids ever played whack-a-mole? Right? You get those big, uh, they got those big uh, foam things on them and you're hitting the head of those, those little gophers that are popping up. Or I guess they're moles. Whack-a-mole, whack-a-gopher. The smart one in the family. Okay. And you're just going whack, whack, whack. Kids, look up at me here. God, God says, when something's coming at you that's not of God, you got to whack it. Whack it. Get rid of it. You know what's one of those things? It sticks his head up that shouldn't? Disobedient to your parents. It's a big deal in God's eyes. You know why? God teaches us to be obedient to him by learning to be obedient to our parents. And in fact, sometimes even when you think, I will say many times, when you think, your parents are so unfair. What you need to think is, I'm more concerned about obeying God than whether or not I think my mom and dad are fair right now. And you can worship God by doing something like cleaning your room or washing the dishes without griping. Right? Delayed obedience is, anybody know? Disobedience. All the kids say that with me. Delayed obedience is? Disobedience. No. I guess you know how to pray through McGee family. No, I'm... <laughs> Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Oh, now we're moving away from the kids some. That got awkward. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this next verse. Having the appearance of godliness and yet denying its 
power. Avoid such people. Be decisive. Accept what is right. Reject what is wrong. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Do you know somebody like that? You've been talking to them about the Lord over and over and over. They've heard the gospel of Jesus more times than many people in other nations combined. They just don't ever get it. Now, does it mean you give up on their salvation? No. But they're not the friends you pal around with. They know that your relationship is about God and His kingdom. Maybe they're a little put off by you because of God's conviction in their life. That's okay. Don't try to smooth it over too much. Don't hear me saying don't be kind. Don't hear me say don't be loving. Don't remove the convicting work of the Spirit of God by trying to be nice or kind, or soften the edges of the Bible. We do not need to explain God away, brothers and sisters. We must not ever apologize for God being God. Second Peter 3.17 You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error, the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Be careful, he says to the church. Psalm 1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffer, but his, what? His delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Please don't leave here saying that I said something that I didn't say. Pastor Matt said, if people aren't godly, people aren't perfect, we're, not, we're supposed to write them off. No. Amen. No way. But we are to be decisive. We are to delight in God's word so much. We are to be so familiar with God's word that we're, we can see quickly. When something's not reflecting the light, it needs to get sorted properly. You need to know who they are. You need to know your purpose for your friendship with them. He says he hates people that are like this. I mean, this is strong language, but it's a comparison language, right? I hate them compared to how much I love God's law. I think it's fair to say, too, maybe he sees some of this own tendency in himself. I see it in myself at times. It's hard for me to be hard on people like that sometimes because I know my own sin, I know where my own heart is tempted. And I know that were it not for grace, I wouldn't be walking with the Lord at all right now. But that doesn't mean anything goes because we're tempted with similar things. It means we need to be careful. He's motivated to keep his distance from those folks so that he's not swayed by them. Alexander McLaren, a late British pastor, he said, these verses breathe out love of God's law and a determination to avoid double-mindedness, but it's only against the dark background of his own tendency to be lukewarm that the strong fixing of his mind and his will to obey God, God's law makes sense. He knows the struggle's real. He knows the struggle's real, so he, he knows that he needs to keep his distance. He knows, he knows that he needs to heed what James says 
when he urged his readers to pray in faith. Pray in faith and, and not wavering through any kind of indecision and doubt. The one who does waver shouldn't think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Unfortunately, we often don't pray in faith. We waver. We waver. We forget that we're praying to the creator of the universe. The ones that, 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 that's decisive loves God's law because it's right. And only in the Lord he finds protection. Verse 14, he says, he describes the Lord as, as his hiding place, his shield. And he's motivated to keep God's word that he even addresses the evildoers directly. I mean, you see what he says there in verse 15. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of God. Do you see what the priority is? You see the motive? In almost every verse, you see the motive. That I may keep God's word. Depart from me, those who are evil, why? That I might keep God's commandments. I love God so much. I need his word so much. I want to uh, arrest my life so that I can live to follow his commandments in every way. So in our effort to be decisive, welcoming what's right and rejecting what's wrong, we need to pray for grace to persevere. Beg the Lord for help. Remember, he made the universe. He created you. He knows exactly how you're put together. He, he fashioned you in your mother's womb before one of your days came to be. He knows exactly where you thrive. He knows exactly where you're weak. He knows exactly what your temptations are. Ask him, the one who knows you more than anyone else, for his help. He says, uphold me. Hold me up. He doesn't have the strength to follow God on his own. He needs God's sustaining grace. You and I need God's sustaining grace. God gives us his sustaining grace through his word, illumined or given understanding by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. The moment you become a Christian. And often informed by the body of Christ, helped by the body of Christ. He's motivated because he wants God's glory. He says in everything, Lord, give me the grace to keep on keeping on. I don't want to be put to shame in the hope that I have in you. But notice he's calling God upon his character. God, God I, I don't want to be put to shame for the hope that I have in you, because then others might see you as unreliable. I know you're not unreliable, but don't let me be put to shame because I want them to see how faithful you are. I want them to see how wonderful you are. So, so don't let me be put to shame. We need to embrace the fear of the Lord and love, love God for who he is. He says in verse 18, there's some interesting wording here. I wish I had more time to elaborate on it. But he says, you spurn all, who's, all those who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you, you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. We often talk about the fear of the Lord. And in some instances, it's right as a reverent sense of awe and worship. 
Brothers and sisters, fear of the Lord is fear. It is reverent awe, and it is worship, but it is fear. It's not fear of being discarded by God when we are his children, but it is, it is fear. Did you know, I don't know the number, I read this recently, a certain number of people die each year at the Grand Canyon at some of the steepest drop-offs. Dads. I know it's not really something to laugh at because they're trying to show their kids they can pretend they're going to run and jump off and stop, but they don't stop in time. They don't have a proper fear of the situation. They don't have a proper fear for the drop ahead. We need to fear God. We need to know God, love God for who He is, as He is, without explaining Him away. Everything God explains about Himself, when it's confusing to us, when it's hard for us to understand, the problem with is, is with us and our small boxes that we want to put the Lord in, not with God and who He is and how He reveals Himself to us. The problem is with us, not with God. I've heard people say, I can't worship a God like that. Well, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Now, do you have to have perfect knowledge of God to become a Christian? Of course not. Absolutely not. It's not possible. We won't have that until we're in glory. But when you read something hard about the Lord, don't explain it away. Don't soften the edges. Say, God, help me to see you as you are. Help me to fear you as you are. Help me to worship you rightly. God rejects those who reject Him as He is. Right? Like those paddles. Got all those red tomatoes reflecting the light. The sensor doesn't see the light. Whack. Now wait a minute. I thought God loved everybody and I thought God accepted everybody. I thought God's patience didn't ever have an end. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews tells us, it is appointed unto man once to die and after... After that comes the judgment. Have you rejected me? Whack. Except now we laugh at the illustration, but it, it won't be a day for laughing. It won't be a day for laughing. God, God removes the wicked like dross. This is dross if, as their, as their heat, metal is heated up. So hot, it's like lava. Dross floats to the top. And they, and they skim it off the top and they, just, and they discard it. He removes the evil like dross. And he trembles at God's judgments. You can go enjoy the gorgeous, breathtaking view, but you better be 20 feet back. You better have a hold on the hands of your kids. We need to stand in a right fear of the Lord. Fear is motivating. If you don't believe me, think back to some of your parenting moments. You use fear to motivate, at some level. So we need to be decisive, welcome what's right, reject what's wrong. We need to depend on the Lord to care of us, point two. We need to depend the Lord on the Lord to take care of us. I'll move through this section more, more quickly, but when we trust the Lord, which is evidenced by obedience to his word, 
Now, I just want to tell you, friends, James asks the question, if books are written, well, is Paul's theology of grace right or James's theology of works right? Well, they're in unison. It's two sides of the same coin. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you faith that's dead. And that's right. If you say you love the Lord, but your life is not backed up by a life of striving to glorify God, not to earn salvation, but out of love for the Lord, out of a right fear of the Lord, I'll challenge your salvation. I'll say your salvation doesn't match what the Bible says those who love God are supposed to look like. I won't tell you you're not saved because that's not my job. But I'll warn. Psalmist gives three reasons for his confidence here. One, he, 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 he looks to God because God acts out of his steadfast love. Verse 124. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. God, I know my many, many problems and I know your steadfast love. I want to know your statutes. I want to know your ways, not just in my head, but what it's like to walk it out each and every day. He roots his prayer in continually knowing and growing in God's word. Many prays in verse 125, I'm your servant. I am your servant. Your servant I am would be the, wor- the wording order. I'm, I'm trying very hard to stay away from Yoda. Give me understanding. He, he watches out, the Lord does, for those who seek understanding and know how to live out his word. God is not a cosmic joker putting you in difficult situations, watching you cry out to him and, and refusing to help you. That's not God. That's not God. He has given us a way to know him, which we are to delight in. You don't know God's word? Start today. Start today. Find someone who knows it just a little bit better than you and say, hey, will you teach me the word? Let them help you. Let them help you grow. Remember, our affliction, our struggles are often, they're constructed. They're for teaching us, helping us grow in our love for him, knowing our need for him. But God's working in the waiting. Psalm 24, 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That waiting, friends, is, is almost always in the scriptures active waiting. It's waiting with your face in the word of God. It's waiting while you're, you're doing what you're able to do to walk in obedient faith. And then he says in 126, act according to your character and in the right time and in the right ways. He says, Lord, it's time to act. Your law's been transgressed. Come on. That part's a paraphrase. Lord, your law's been broken and I know you don't stand for it. It's time to act. Paul asked the question in Romans 10. He said, how can one be saved unless he hears? Well, the answer is he can't. Need somebody to preach the word. Well, they, how can they preach unless they're sent? They can't. They need to be sent. You get the idea. Same principles apply here. How can a believer be blessed unless he reads? He won't. She won't. 
Neglect the Bible, you neglect your soul. If you neglect time in the Word, friend, you neglect your soul. Ah, Christianity is not really working for me. Really? Are you not working what God gave you to work for your own soul and for His glory? A little at a time as we read the Bible will you know how to pray intelligently. We need to pray intelligently. We need to pray, and I don't mean uh, big words, I don't mean lots of words. I mean we need to pray according to what the Bible teaches us. We need to pray intelligently to act and to pray specifically. We need to pray specifically means that we don't know what we're supposed to pray for, and to know what to pray for means that we know God's will at some level as it's revealed to us in the Bible. Which means that if you want to pray for God's will, you need to you need to know your Bible. Let me ask you a few tough questions in closing. You're welcome. Are you moved by what moves God? Do you find joy in the things that bring God joy? Or do you find frustration or anger in the things that anger God? Another question. Are, are you avoiding, are you focusing on one area to the detriment of other areas because you'd rather avoid what God wants to do in your life over here? How are you handling, handling conflict in your life? Are you handling conflict in your life biblically? Do you know what to pray for? Are you motivated by God's glory or by your own desires? Last question. Are you willing to endure whatever the sovereign God of the universe says is right for you in order to know him more? Most people will never say it at the front end. But on the back end of a trial, you hear testimonies like, that was such a terrible time in my life. But I wouldn't change a thing. Because now I know God more. Now I've learned how to trust. Now my, my character as Romans 5, 3 through 5 has been developed through enduring difficulty. And now I have perseverance and developed character. Now I've got hope. It doesn't put us to shame because God's poured his love into us through Jesus. And he ends by saying, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right and I hate every false way. As the psalmist delights in God's word, he's led to, to these decisive moments to choose what's right to depend on the Lord to take care of him and to reject what's wrong. We need to do the same. Jesus did the same. In Gethsemane, after he'd prayed, Judas has already done the deed, gotten his money, so to speak, and they come to the garden. And Judas out of love for God, a misunderstanding of what was happening. Oh, I said Judas, I'm sorry, Peter. Out of love for God and a clear misunderstanding of what's going on, lobs off Malchus's ear. Right? I mean, if I'm one of, one of the disciples with him, I'm like, nice. Nice move. Quick thinking. 
Oh, Jesus. No reflection of light in that action. Whap! Peter put it away. Decisively out of a delight for the Father's word and will, he accepts what's good, the Father's plan. He rejects what's evil. Let's go to the cross. Aren't you so glad? Aren't you so glad he did that for the Father, for you, for me? Your actions, my actions, have consequences. They impact not only our own lives, but the lives of those around us. Don't ever think, oh, this is just about me and my walk with the Lord. That's never the case. Never. But today we, we sit as a family here in this church and we get to worship the Lord by remembering his sacrifice for us, eating bread that reminds us of his sacrifice, drinking juice that reminds us that he shed his blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God doesn't overlook sin because he likes us. No, he knows the penalty must be paid. And delighting in God's purpose, Jesus goes for the cross. Right for the cross. Despising its shame. And now, seated at the right hand of God the Father.